Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Since 2006, economist Russ Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, has hosted the podcast Econ Talk, a weekly deep conversation with economists and thinkers from other disciplines on ideas related both directly and indirectly to economics and the economic way of thinking. Economics is a powerful analytic tool which can empower us to choose more wisely as both individuals and groups. Such tools, however, should not be confused as either ends in themselves or the measure of human values. Religion is, like economics, embedded in the fabric of life itself. Its neglect and the neglect of other humanistic values in the face of unprecedented prosperity poses new challenges to animate our lives of affluence with purpose. Today, Acton's Dan Huger talks with Russ Roberts about the intersection of faith and economics, and how Roberts' own Jewish faith has influenced his life and work. You can check out resources for this episode in our show notes, posted at blog.acton.org. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend. Acton Line is available on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Russ Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is the host of the always outstanding weekly podcast, Econ Talk, which features long conversations with interesting thinkers from many disciplines. He is the author of numerous books, including his most recent titled, Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverse Incentives Cause the Financial Crisis. He is also something of an interdisciplinary artist with novels, poems, and two rap videos on the ideas of the economists John Maynard Keynes and F.I. Hayek. Today, we'll be having a conversation about the role of religion in shaping his own pursuit of meaning and purpose in life and in his vocation as an economist. Russ, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Great to be with you. First, I'd, I'd like to begin the noting that your podcast, Econ Talks Audience, is largely a secular one. And while you mention your own religious beliefs and practice periodically when relevant to the conversations, uh, they don't take center stage in the vast majority of those conversations. What is your own religious background and what does your religious practice look like? You're absolutely right about Econ Talk. Uh, my religious practice arises now and then. I think it mostly comes up when we're talking about the distractions of technology um, and the addictive nature of social media, I sometimes will mention that I observe the Jewish Sabbath, which means that from sunset on Friday to dark on Saturday for 25 hours, I abstain from a lot of things, but one of them includes technology. So I'm not on my phone, driving my car, um, watching TV or on my computer. So uh, that's where it tends to, to come up. But, of course, it underlies, uh, for me, a lot of what I do on that program. Uh, my personal practice, as I mentioned, is Jewish. Uh, I was not raised as a religious Jew. I came to a more 
I was raised in, I would call a traditional Jewish household. But as I got older and in my thirties, I had, I took on the full range of obligations of Orthodox Judaism, more or less. When I say more or less, we're all flawed. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are many things I didn't uh, keep uh, the, the the right way, but I did what I hope was the best that I could do uh, in making that commitment. And so as a result, it permeates my daily life. It permeates my years, and it permeates my career to some extent, inevitably. Yeah. No, it's 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 striking how those things shape you, and at first very small, and then and then and then the the aggregate of that is is a very large sort of personal transformation. It eventually becomes the water you swim in. Yeah, and after a while, you don't even think about the fact that you're swimming. Uh, you're just a fish, uh, and it it. Um, it adds a great deal. There's some tangible things you can point to that determine a Jewish life. Uh, one of them being the Sabbath. I mentioned what you can eat. There's some obvious um, obligations that you have, but the result isn't easily described simply as you you have to do this or you can't do that. It, it changes your whole uh, outlook on life inevitably. Or at least it should. Absolutely. No. And I'm glad you mentioned that, that water they swim in. Because, you know, on your show, there there's certain recurring ideas, turns of phrase. Um, and this is this is one from, from David Foster Wallace. And another one you return yeah. to on the show again and again is the notion, also from, from David Foster Wallace, that everyone worships. What is that? What does that mean to you? And how does that idea work itself out? In your own in your own sort of consciousness and, and religious practice, how, how do you bring that worship um, into the world, and and how does that worship shape the way you know you orient yourself in, in relationship to other people? So, uh, it's hard to think of a two word phrase that is more resonant than that, um, and 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 thought provoking. The idea that everyone worships. So what I understand David Foster Wallace to mean, uh, he means that uh, we're all devoted to something. It's one of the things he means by that. And uh, he suggests that if you're going to be devoted to something, you might choose one with a a divine focus uh, rather than, say, money or uh, beauty or fame. Uh, But I think to understand it more broadly, I think it speaks to something deep in our human nature, which is the desire to be part of something larger than ourselves. Um, uh, we yearn for that. We yearn for the transcendent, uh, the awesome. It speaks to something deep and primal within us. And, you know, for, for me, that helps me think about the way that people move in the world, both religiously in the normal sense of the word religious, meaning through church, synagogue, or mosque, but it also means the way people move through the world who don't have that in their lives. And I think we all look for things like those things to fill a part of us. Um, So that's what I learned from David Foster Wallace. And I think when you think of things that way, um, the religious side of us is, has an element of, when I think now with the, the traditional sense of the word religious, the religious side of us is uh, has an element of the mysterious. Yeah. It's not purely rational. 
doesn't mean it's irrational. Mm-hmm. It's not purely rational, though. It's not our religious identities are typically not up for uh, debate, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you and I are not going to have a debate on the divinity of uh, of Jesus. Uh, it's not the facts aren't what determine where we stand on that issue. It, it's a deeper. Um, supra-rational part of ourselves. It's not really amenable to the standard techniques of science or the way we lead our, say, academic lives or other parts of our life. And so as a result, it's set aside. And when I think of everyone worships, the David Foster Wallace insight, one of the things that helps me think about is uh, that's a part of everyone's identity, everyone's existence. There are parts of us that are deeply uh, rooted mm-hmm. and aren't, uh, we pretend that they are, oh, well, if, if the facts uh, didn't coincide with my view, I'd change my view. But that's very hard for us to do. And we choose our facts, of course, to help enforce and support and inspire us in our religious beliefs. And I don't say that in a, in a demeaning or, um, I, I don't think, I don't think, just part of who we are as human beings. Uh, so, that's the first part of your question. The second part was, you know, how does it affect my um, my work day or work life or econ talk? I think you wanted to know. Um, I don't know. I like to think I'm doing something more than just chit-chatting with people for an hour a week. So I think for me, there's a sense of purpose there that that I find deeply rewarding. Uh, you know, part of it's an international conversation I'm able to have, not just with my guests, but with my listeners. I like the idea that they're listening in and they send me emails to tell me that, you know, the impact of the program. So, you know, I think for me, it's a very inspiring um, way that I get to spend my time. I'm very blessed. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And, and it's, it's so interesting when we, when we talk about this incalculable element of experience, this, 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 this element of experience that, that in fact, you know, maybe the ground on which we can make the sort of discriminative choices when we can evaluate our likes and our dislikes and sort of step back from that, step back from uh, appearance, you know, a raw appearance. And, th- and this is the place from which we can, we can make meaning for ourselves of these appearances is something that's very striking to hear from an economist because economists – have, and economics has been famously skewered as, as the dismal science. And economists is people who sort of know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I know that you've been very critical of many economists uh, that you see with this impulse to reduce all of life to the economic or, or, to, or to sort of raw economic data. Uh, how does your own understanding of the vocation of an economist been shaped by, by these criticisms and, and by that caricature? And, and in what sense are they fair and in, and, in, and in what sense are they not? Well, I'd go, I, you know, there are two aspects to your question, which I think are, are important. One is the narrowly, what we would call a financial. Mm-hmm. Your salary, your standard of living, the kind of car you drive, how big your house is. Uh, I think we all understand that those are not the source of meaning in our life or a source of well-being. We understand that we don't have roof over our head or enough to eat. Life is quite miserable. But um, I, I think there's a huge mistake in economics that 
presumes that our command over goods and services determines how happy we are or our well-being. It's literally built into the framework of economics. We talk about people maximizing utility, utility being a catch-all phrase for whatever gives us satisfaction. And inevitably, what gives us satisfaction in most economic models is stuff. And that's a corrupt, I think, view of the human enterprise. I think when pressed, most economists would agree, but they would say, oh, well, but you know, that helps us understand the demand for shirts, or that helps us think about how people respond to taxation. Or they might say, well, of course, what people get satisfaction from goes beyond stuff. It includes pride and dignity and other things. And so I think there's a continuum of how economists deal with this inevitably narrow perspective on uh, how we live. And yet, in practice, it's really hard to remember all those caveats. So I think what actually happens in practice is we tend to forget about the fact that people care about more than money, that we care about more than just our material well-being, and uh, we give short shrift to the deeper source of satisfaction that we have in the world. And that is, um, you said, I criticize economists. I I criticize economics, that, that practice of economics. You know, I think it's a common problem. I don't pick on particular economists for, for uh, often, often at least for, for failing to note the, this, these richer ideas. But I do think there's a there's a challenge in economics, and it goes way beyond economics. It's in psychology. The idea that there's a science of happiness is very seductive, and I think wrong to think there's a calculus of well-being, which is again the economics reductionism. But more than that, the idea that our focus on what can be measured, which extends well beyond economics, it comes out of the scientific revolution and the application of the scientific method of you know 500 years ago with Francis Bacon, that was a glorious insight into how to understand the world better. But we often forget the limits of what parts of the world that can illuminate. So I, you know, my criticism is on the failure to recognize the limits of those techniques and focus as we as humans inevitably are going to do onto what can be measured and the intangible, the subjective, the mysterious, those things are going to be undervalued in that uh in that calculus because they can't they can't be measured. Absolutely. Now economics being what it is, um, you know, which is often seen as, as, as a value-free or value-neutral social science. Um, and, this is, and this is something that, you know, is not, you rightly point out, is not unique to economics. This is, this is many disciplines. And this, uh, this attempt to calculate happiness is something that goes on in, in psychology as well. Um, does, does religion have anything to contribute to a solution to that problem about how how do we how do we hold on the one hand to a sort of scientific method because it you know it has demonstrated uh, abilities to to create marvelous insights into the natural world um, and 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 even even into some sort of human decision making and that sort of thing in terms of psychology and economics, 
but but how do we how do we bring those? Uh, Paul Hain used to say um, he wrote wrote an essay a number of years ago that actually we published in uh, uh, Religion and Liberty, entitled uh, "The Limits of the Economic Way of Thinking," and he talked about how markets are excellent at delivering to us what we want, but what we all ought to keep in mind is uh, to think about more critically what we want. Um, is, is there any way that you can see, you can see that concern with, uh, of bringing values into the equation? Do you, do you see opportunities to do so in economics as a discipline? Or is that something that we have to preserve to preserve the sort of integrity of economics as, as something that we sort of have to, have to, have to set aside? Well, first of all, I want to make it clear that even though I'm critical of economics, I think it has a great deal to teach us. Uh, And in particular, I think its most important contribution is in helping us understand complexity and the way that individual actions aggregate into social results, such as the level of prices in a a particular city, say, for housing, or how innovation might lower the price of something over time through competition and improvement. Those are really important aspects of, of, of human life that economics illuminates. I just think we have to be careful not to overestimate what we can uh, measure and understand with any precision. Uh, that, that's my, my main complaint. I want to try to get at your deeper question, though, about values with it, in maybe two different ways. The first is that uh, religion, one of the things religion does for us is it gives us a narrative to make sense of the chaos around us. And you can think of economics as a different narrative, right? Economics is a narrative that says, typically, people are rational. They're trying to do the best they can with the limited amount of resources, so they have to make choices, face trade-offs, and so on. And in that, if again, if we're going to caricature the economics way of thinking, you might say the essence of life is to calculate well, make those trade-offs wisely, understand that choices have consequences and foregone opportunities, and therefore, you should choose well. Uh, But what economics doesn't tell you, of course, is is what matters. (laughs) Uh, It is value-free in that sense. Uh, And to understand what matters, I think you need a different kind of narrative about about life. Uh, Is life about maximizing how much fun you can have? Is it about making sure you have the most pleasure? Is it to minimize risk? Is it to minimize pain? Is it to minimize suffering? Or is it to join with others and be part of something larger than yourself? And of course, they're all true. All those things are part of, of life, and you can choose those different narratives to help you think about how to live. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the economic way of thinking, the, I should say the economist toolkit as I mentioned before, it's about maximization. It's about getting the most out of any opportunity. We all understand that natural life, people don't do that. Um, if they do, they tend not to have that many friends. You know, if you see every encounter as a chance to say, what can I get out of this? You're not going to have a very good marriage. You're not going to be a very good parent. <laughs> uh, you're not going to be a good neighbor. And so the economist recognizes that and says, oh, yeah, well, let's put some other things in the model. Let, let's recognize that, you know, I'm going to leave that's off to the side. But, of course, 
as we live our lives, we have to confront those things all the time as parents and as husbands and wives and children of older parents say. These are things that, that we have to cope with. Um, and I, I think the one way to think about the contrast between the economic way of thinking and what you might call the religious way of thinking is in the economic way of thinking, you know, you start with a certain set of preferences, a certain set of values, and you try to get the most out of life given those preferences. The religious way of thinking, and to come back full circle now to how you asked your question, is, okay, but what are my values? What do I want to care about? So um, I may want something, but what do I want to want? What do I want? What do I aspire to in my day-to-day life? Is this it? Is it, am I, can I change? Can I improve? Can I make myself a better human being? What if that were less fun? Would that mean that the economics sort of thing says you shouldn't do that? Does the economics way of thinking say that most people don't want to do that? And yet we know people who try to do that, or at least give the impression they do. How do we? How are we to understand that? So I think you know, if we think about a religious life as you know aiming towards something, something higher than just what gives me pleasure, I think that gives us a very different um, way of thinking about how to make our choices. Yeah, I think that's I think that's excellent. I mean, because uh, something you see you see in a broad spectrum of religious traditions is the notion that that many of our desires, many of our wants, are things that we should not want. Saint Paul uses the expression, you know, there's 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 a war in in my members. You know, that the, 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 there's a, there's a divided self. There's an aspirational self, and there is a self that uh, that is content with the pleasure principle. Um, and there's a way in which, in which, you know, those things, recognizing that tension is sort of one of the fundamental sort of insights of, of, of religion. I, I should add, I, you know, I don't have anything against pleasure. Yeah. And Judaism is not a particularly ascetic religion. Mm-hmm. Asceticism is, is generally frowned on. In fact, there's a, uh, I think it's in the Talmud, your the idea that when, when you, um, come to the world to come, you're going to be asked, did you taste everything that was available to you? Some things are not available. Uh, another another person's spouse or um, pork, but in Judaism. Yep. But of the things that are available did you, to you, the, the gifts that God gives us, did you explore them? Did you, did you lead a full life? Um, so th- there's no... There's no um, in Judaism. There's no idea of asceticism. There, there is the idea, though, to come back to your earlier questions about uh, econ talk and the way I see my myself. Uh, you know, a very powerful idea in in Genesis that for six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you should rest. That's um, a different kind of day. Those six days of working are important. There, there's a. It's not just that. Two things to say about that. The, the day of rest is not to recharge your batteries so that you can be more productive. Uh, the day of rest of the Sabbath has a unique set of spiritual um, demands and pleasures that that have more to do with 
the experience itself rather than what you're not doing, that you're, that you're not working, that you're taking leisure, not just a holiday. It, it's more than that. That's the first point I want to make. Second point I want to make, though, it, 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 there's a little bit of tension with that, which is that the working has its own value. The working is that uh, we have a job. The Hebrew is tikkun olam, the idea of repairing the world, that the world is broken and that we have an obligation to make it better is uh, a very uh, important Jewish principle. So, so for me, uh, work has its own value and not working has more value than just leisure, uh, but they both are important. Absolutely. Now, have, have the concepts and principles of economics influenced your own understanding of religion or the religious experience? Not, not, not just your own, but, but is there something that economists can, can teach us about maybe not the inner life, but, but sort of the community life of religion or, or its institutional forms? Judaism is very different from Christianity in, in certain aspects besides some core beliefs, obviously. Uh, one of the differences, you know, I, I would say is the concept of halakha which is usually translated as law. Uh, there are a lot of rules in Judaism. Uh, <laughs> it's traditional to say there's 613 in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, in, a, in a way, that actually is an undercount. You, know, you could say, well, there's 10, right? 10 commandments? And there's actually a lot more. Yeah. And in fact, we think about their application to daily life, there's a lot more. But the, the point I want to make is that halakha, which is... Um, often translated as laws or rules, actually literally means way, uh, the way, the path, the, the mode, you could say that your, your mode of living, the, the halakha is a um, very, very wide-ranging set of restrictions and obligations that infuse every single aspect of life, uh, which makes it sound a little bit burdensome or onerous. It can be at first. After a while, for many people, it becomes, again, the water you live in. It's not, um, it, it, it yields a set of a texture to life and a, a flavor to life that's, that can be deeply rewarding. But my point is that a lot of Jewish law in the Talmud or in the Hebrew Bible, where it starts, is about how we interact with each other uh, in the workplace uh, or as buyers and sellers. So it's not silent about any aspect of our life. Um, in Judaism, everything has the potential to be elevated, uh, made holy through um, that set of commandments that we're expected to to keep and observe. And that includes things, just to take a, a trivial example, not trivial, but a, a modest example, uh, having honest weights and measures. Mm -hmm. uh, you're commanded to keep honest weights and measures. Now, you, there are times that you could probably change something, get away with something, be dishonest. You're not supposed to. You might be tempted to. You might fail. Do it anyway. But you're supposed to. So uh, you're supposed to take care of your ox so it doesn't gore other people. You got to keep it fenced in. You got to make sure you don't dig a hole 
that someone could stumble into and hurt themselves. When you build a roof, you have to put a parapet around it so people don't fall off it when they come to visit you. So there's a whole set of legal obligations that a, a, an observant Jew has to keep. And economics has a lot to so say about many of those things. Um, we're not going to go into it, but there are parts of the Hebrew Bible that remind me of the Coase Theorem. Yeah. <laughs> Coase Theorem is a, uh, an economic principle that describes how people uh, interact when when something I do, say, either causes you harm or bothers you. Uh, we're in the middle of this right now. If I go hiking, as I did this past Sunday, wearing a mask in the middle of the pandemic, and someone comes along not wearing a mask, uh, there's a temptation for me to get angry at them and say, that person's harming me by not wearing a mask. Um, they're putting me at risk. They may have the virus. And Coase would actually remind me that I'm also free to move away from that person. There's two ways to fix that problem. One way is for that person to either choose to wear a mask or be required to wear one, which is happening in many states and cities around the world. But another way Coase would say is, well, another way to reduce the harm from somebody not wearing a mask is to stay far away from them. And maybe that's the right thing to do. So those kind of situations of mutual uh, harm in this case, but it can also be mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. Uh, A case of mutual benefit would be where my bees pollinate your almonds (laughs) and I'm giving you a benefit and therefore you owe me money. Well, that'd be one way to solve it uh, through the court. There are other ways to solve that problem. Um, So economics and, and Judaism interact in that sense when Jewish law is related to things that we would very much call economics, our interactions with each other as buyers and sellers, or our impact on each other through the choices we make, which are often in economics called externalities. So that part, you know, the Torah, the Talmud, the Hebrew Bible have have things to say about um, all those things. And I like looking at those things through the eyes of, as, of an economist. It's fun for me to think about it. No, no, that's 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 fascinating, and and there are so many layers. I mean, you look. One of the things we do at the at the Acton Institute is we try to bring um, English translations of many works from the early modern period in, and particularly in the Christian tradition, of theologians grappling with these economic questions. And this happens, of course, of course, also in Judaism and also in Islam. There. Uh, and uh, many, many elements of the Hindu tradition. There are, there are economic questions that are sort of explicitly, explicitly um, argued for and explained in a way that's in, in it, you know, in not, not the modern discipline of economics, but with a lot of those same developing some of those same analytical lenses that, that modern economists employ that we, that we often don't see in, in, in much contemporary religious discussion. Do you, th- do you think religious leaders would be better served with, with, a, with a better understanding of economics? Do you think that that's something that, um, you know, it's something that you very much enjoy and which deepens your own understanding of, of your own faith um, do you think that that would that would be beneficial um, th- if more religious people had exposure to those to those ideas and those in those sort of analytical lenses? Well, let me give you the downside, 
then I'll make a case for the upside. So the downside is, is that uh, it is alleged, and I, this could be true, it is alleged that if you major in economics or study economics, you're more likely to be to act selfishly in, in certain situations. So I, it's probably exaggerated, but I'll give you the flavor of that idea. The idea is that I, I'm walking down the street, I find a wallet, and uh, it's full of money, and uh, no one's around. What do I do? So some economists would say, well, you should keep it. There's no cost to keeping it. No one, no one sees you. You've just made free money. Why wouldn't you keep it? Or if you're really nice, you could, I guess, put the cash in your pocket and put the wallet back down in case the owner comes back. At least they can get the driver's license or credit cards. Um, I, I think that's a um, really horrible way to look at the world. I think you should not take the wallet. Or if you do, you should take it try to find the owner, track them down. And you can, as I mentioned before, you could wedge that into the economic way of thinking by saying that I'll feel a lot of satisfaction from helping the owner find their money and so on. But I do think there's a, a temptation in economics to, to confuse what we call the positive and the normative, what people do with what they, what they should do. So what people actually do, of course, is often they, keep the, they might keep the money. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just because it's uh, narrowly rational, uh, it's necess- not necessarily a, a good thing to do. And so I think one of the drawbacks of economics is to come back to our earlier conversation, part of the conversation, if you're not careful, you can start to think of human decisions as mostly a form of pluses and minuses, costs and benefits, calculus, and and people grasping to maximize their there are opportunities and so on. And I think that's a little bit too narrow for most of a lot of human human existence. So that's the downside. The upside, though, is quite large. Uh, so I think most clergy would avoid the downside. I don't think they're going to become grasping based on learning about economic principles. I think the real value of economics to religious people in general, and especially clergy, is to appreciate the complexity of the world. Um Thomas Sowell, either himself or quoting George Stigler, I can't remember now, said economics is the study of, and then what? And then what? So this seems like a good idea, but you'd have to ask, and then what? What are the consequences of this idea? So you might think it's a a great idea to require employers to pay people $15 an hour, and if they pay less, they're liable for fines or or jail. We should have a legal minimum wage. Uh, In my view, that is a mistake because when you say and then what what you've said what you realize if you're trained in economics is to think about well, what are the ch- ramifications of that law is that all it's going to do is just raise the wages of people who earn less than 15 up to 15 and then you start thinking yeah well maybe it would also raise the wages of people who make more than 15 because now suddenly they're in competition and employers are trying to attract people and maybe that they'd have to pay those other people a little bit more but then you start to realize, but won't there be some people who aren't worth $15 to an hour to employer? Are they going to have trouble finding work? And a lot of economists would say, yes, they will. And maybe this thing I'm doing to make people better off is actually going to harm them. So those kind of that kind of thinking, which does not come natural in my experience, having taught in the classroom, I taught for 30 years teaching these ideas. Most people don't think about that. They just think, well, this sounds good. And I think what economics tells you is that often what sounds good may not be as good as it looks on the surface. 
And sensitizing people to those kind of uh, complexities, I think, is deeply, deeply powerful to help people understand that some things emerge not by design, but by the individual choices of a lot of people, and they're not easily changed without serious consequences is really important. I think most people think that many of the problems in life are the result of somebody turning a knob too far in one direction. So they think, oh, we have to fix it, just turn it back the other way. You know, they say, well, say education is not very good in America, so we need to spend more. Usually when you spend more, you get more for your money. That's what we've been doing, yeah. We've spent more in education for about 60 years uh, on a per capita, per student basis. And we haven't made a lot of progress. Some say we'd actually we've lost ground. Oh, I, maybe there are some incentives that make it challenging for that money to be spent wisely. Maybe there are other things going on that aren't amenable to spending more money. So, the, you know, those are just, those are bread and butter. Fruit. That's just easy for economists to to ponder. And I think uh, clergy and most human beings would be well, um, uh, would, would, would profit from, from learning to think that way. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there are many problems in the world caused by failures of public policy rooted in this sort of understanding. And also there are personal and professional failures uh, with a similar sort of constellation of misunderstandings that are at their root. Um, these aren't, however, the root of all social problems. How do you understand the role of meaning and purpose in life? Um, those struggling to find meaning and purpose often find it in a religious tradition. Um, what role does religion and religious institutions have in answering these needs that material abundance can't provide? That, that even if we make all of the right policy choices, um, even if we are extremely wise in our getting and spending, um, what problems remain? And, and are, there, are there religious answers or, or more broadly cultural answers to those problems, do you think? I'm probably going to forget your question, but I want to I use it to go back to, to one aspect of, of what we were, we were just talking about. Absolutely. I think when people look at public policies that don't work well, they tend to assume it's the result of wickedness usually on the part of our political opponents, or sometimes maybe just ineptitude. But the idea that they're just too complicated to, to fix is really not appealing to most of us. And what economics reminds you of is that not every problem is caused by somebody's wickedness, somebody's exploitation of, of, of another. Sometimes it's the result of uh, choices that were made by lots of people under a system and a set of incentives that doesn't lead to excellence. And it's those incentives that need changing, not the wickedness of the people. A lot of times people look at problems and say, we just need a different group of people in charge, forgetting that once the new group gets in charge, they tend to act like the old group. So if you don't change those underlying incentives, I think you're not going to get necessarily better public policy. But you're, you're, I just wanted to mention that. But your real question, which is a deeper question, it is the idea that aren't there things beyond the material that make up a good life? And I think everyone understands that, not just religious people. Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, religion is one way that people find meaning in a um, in a finite life, uh, a finite life of of challenge and uh, of challenge. But there are other ways. A lot of people find it through work, through devotion through teamwork, 
through goals that they find satisfaction in achieving. A lot of ways that people go beyond the material to find to find uh, meaning in life. And I think a, a good economist understands that, uh, and a bad economist struggles to understand. I, I like to say uh, there, there's no variable for dignity in the data set. Mm-hmm. Dignity matters a lot. You don't have to be a religious person to understand. A religious person may be more sympathetic or more sensitive to the, uh, the importance of dignity, but everyone, you don't have to be religious to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All of us have the challenge of of trying to remember its importance. I like to use the example of a uh, if a person's making $50,000 a year in a job that's deeply satisfying to them, that uses their skills, that that allows them to overcome challenges, that has a measure of creativity in it, that allows people to work with others in achieving uh, the goals of the organization. If that job is replaced by a $50,000 check, the person is not, annually, that person is not indifferent. The worst kind of economics is, well, you're the same. In both cases, you have $50,000 worth of stuff. But of course, what's missing in the second story is the dignity and pride and satisfaction that comes from a job well done, from a job shared with others. And while religious people might be especially sensitive to that if they're the right kind of religious people, yeah. you know, religious <laughs> people are like economists. You can, you can struggle to to remember the things you should remember, just like economists can struggle to remember things they should remember. But I think everybody understands that, um, that, that those things matter. And I think we're, we're becoming increasingly uh, aware of that. It's, you know, you could argue it's a result of our great prosperity. Yeah. The fact that we worry about dignity rather than starvation is a great tribute to the, as we're able to lead a great, source of, of gratitude we should have, that we live in a world where uh, the dignity we get from our job, the pride or satisfaction or reward, emotional reward, is it, it, we care about that as, alongside the, the fact that it feeds our families and ourselves. Uh, that's a really recent modern phenomenon that through most of human history would be met with puzzlement mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the main focus was just to keep food on the table. So uh, we're lucky to live in a world, I think, where we have to deal with these issues. It's you know, it's kind of like the thing about social media. I have various addictions over time on, on my iPhone, my smartphone. Uh, sometimes I might be addicted to Twitter and have trouble tearing myself away from my Twitter feed. Right now I'm, I'm on chess.com playing a little too much chess. So, so the, the fact that I have challenges and using my time wisely in the face of social media or some app on my phone, boy, what that's a, that's a good problem to have um, compared to the others mm-hmm. that have we've suffered in human history. Just like obesity is our problem, not starvation. It, obesity is a bad thing to, to, to have, to be. It's bad to be obese. It's not good for your health, uh, your quality of your life, but it, it beats starvation. Yeah. So we have, we have many, many gifts. And we now have a different set of challenges to cope with uh, as a result of that that wealth. And it is an incredible luxury to worry about the meaningfulness we get from our work and not just uh, whether we're, we're hungry or not. In, in, in the blessing itself comes the challenge. And, and that, I, th- I think, is, I think is, is fitting. Um, wherever we are, 
There are there are opportunities to become distracted, um, and and the challenge the challenge should be an invitation for people to work out those things, to find that meaning, and to advance. Um, you know, to reflect on 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 goals and aspirations and what we worship. Um, Russ. Thank you so much for being with us here on Act and Line. This has been this has been a very illuminating discussion, and and uh, thank you for your work, uh, both as an economist, as someone who brings these ideas to people and packages them in new and interesting narratives. And also somebody who brings a sensibility and a sensitivity to human dignity to uh, to all of those endeavors. Thank you. Enjoy talking. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting the show together for you every week. And it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. You can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. 